last week, uh, when Barry was taking the sermon, he actually referred to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And it's very pertinent to what we're going to look at this morning as well. So I'm just going to read those few verses for you. And this is about the early church in Jerusalem. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. In some ways, having read that, I could pack up and go home. And no, I can see a few people smiling, but please, <laughs> I'm afraid I'm not going to. But we've got in that passage the essence of what the church does. And that's what we're going to be looking at as we go through, the, uh, through this sermon. But before we do, just a, an illustration. A few years ago, I was spending a lot of time for work in Poland. And one of the places I passed through most weeks was Torren Station. Once I get the technology to work. Right. Yeah. And one of the things they, they've got at the station is that engine. Now, fairly obvious question. What do you think that engine does? Well, the answer is, it doesn't do anything. Though it looks like it's on the main line, that section of track it's on is literally two feet longer than the engine is. It's a relic. It's sitting there on a short section of track, nowhere to go. But it was designed to be so much more than that, to do so much more than that. And sometimes you wonder if that's what many people today think the church is, a relic, an organization that isn't relevant in today's world, that doesn't do anything of value or is out of touch and not meeting modern needs. Last week, Barry got us looking at what we expect from church, like the things have gone, and what we are commanded as a church to do. And today, we're going to look in more detail at what that church does, or what the church does, and more accurately, what it's supposed to do, and why it's supposed to do it. If you look on the internet and do a search for what the church does, you can find a lot of different statements about what the church is for. And even if you take out the ones that aren't based on the Bible, the views of non-Christians, uh, which are quite interesting. It's worth looking at them separately to see what they think we're about. At first glance, there doesn't seem to be a lot of commonality. You get long lists, you get short lists. But if you look closely, actually, there's a lot more consistency that first meets the eye. And the differences are a bit more like emphasis and how you divide things up or combine them together. But the statements do tend to focus on actions and tasks. And before we start looking at those, we should be clear, actions alone are not a purpose. 
It's like we used to say in the military, you've got capability and you've got intent. Capability is the hardware and the people and the training. The intent is what the politicians want to do with the armed forces. Um, one can change very quickly and one can't. So we need to know the intent. What are we trying to achieve? What is God's purpose for us? What is he trying to achieve through us as a body of his people? And that we can read that in two ways. There is us as in all of the Christians worldwide and us as in this congregation of people that God has put together. And really this goes back to why God made humankind in the beginning. If you look at the story in the first three chapters of Genesis, you get a hint of this. Genesis 1.27, God made man in his own image, capable of having a relationship with each other, and more importantly, having a relationship with God. If you look at uh, the relationship side, you can see in chapter 2, verse 18, verses 20 to 23, and the relationship with God, chapter 3, verse 8. God used to come into the garden of an evening and walk with Adam and Eve and talk with them. But then we went and spoiled it. We lost that ability to enjoy creation with God. We lost that ability to talk to God face to face. We lost that ability to enjoy his presence. But ultimately, the reason we were created was to give glory to God and the church is intended to do the same thing. We are here to have that relationship with God, to give him glory, to give him praise. And so uh, both individually and as a group. So the first role of the church is ministry to God, worship. Colossians 3 verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and gratitude in your heart. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. The Westminster Shorter, Shorter Catechism, I think I said that right, and I'll put my teeth back in, starts with the question, what is the chief end of man? What are we for? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Psalm 86, verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and bow down before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Whatever, so whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. And Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it. Rejoice. We're there. But what is worship? Well, it's not just singing. Though singing praises is part of what we do, is part of worship. One definition that I came across many years ago was worth-ship. Expressing the worthiness of God. This isn't something we just do on a Sunday, and even worse, you know, just a Sunday morning. Our whole lives should be giving worship to God. We should be living every day of our life, every minute of the day, to give him honor and glory. As Ephesians 1, 11 to 12 puts it, in Christ we have also attained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplished all things, according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. That involves everything we do, on a Sunday, on a weekday, at home, at work, in everything we think, everything we say, everything we do, 
and what we don't do as well. If we ignore that person in need, particularly if they're a brother or sister Christian, we are not doing God's work. We're not giving him glory. If we miss somebody who we could give an encouraging word to, we're failing to deliver glory. Everything we do here this morning should be worship. The songs we've sung, the prayers, our fellowship, our giving, our learning from God's word, all should be giving God glory. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So that's one of the things we do as a church. Secondly, we have a ministry to fellow believers. Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. The gifts he gave were some, that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. Just before he went to heaven, Jesus gave his followers the command to go and make disciples of all nations. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, we're here today because they and subsequent generations of believers have done just that. They've gone out and they have made disciples. Our mission isn't about converts alone. Yes, we are supposed to be witnessing so that people are converted. But remember, it's not our role to actually convert somebody. That's God's work. We're just his means of delivering a message. But as a body, we should be seeking to help new believers and newer believers, i.e. people who are perhaps less experienced in the faith than us, to grow in their faith. So they develop that deeper understanding of God and what he's done for us. To identify and develop the gifts that any individual has and encourage them to use those gifts for the work of the church. Church growth is something we'd all love to see, but it isn't measured or shouldn't be measured by numbers. It should be measured by the increasing spiritual maturity and love of the members in that church. Love towards God and love towards other believers. And you can't do one without the other. John was pretty clear about that. You know, beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. In other words, if you don't love the people you're sitting next to in the pew, the people you're sitting in front of you, sitting behind you, then you're not loving God either. Numbers aren't, aren't a good measure because if you put on various events that attract people, if you change the services so they're less, less challenging, avoid teaching the hard parts of the Bible. Actually, tell you what, let's avoid teaching the Bible altogether because it's an old book that people don't relate to nowadays. Your numbers in the seats may grow, but it is not any kind of meaningful kingdom way of growth. We would have attendees, not disciples, a box office, not a congregation. 
We've got to teach the word. We've got to help each other grow. And each of us individually should be seeking to grow as well. We've already mentioned Ephesians 4, 12 to 13. But look at that. No longer be children tossed about and blow to and fro, blown by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in defeat, deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and knitted together in every ligament by which it is equipped. Every part working properly promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. All I can say is Paul used to write some right mouthfuls, but I think the intent is clear there. We've got to grow. Peter put it more simply in 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3. Get rid of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. We're all supposed to grow. We're supposed to do, do, basically do our exercises, read the Bible, take part in things, learn, apply it, and grow. We're not called to sit in a chair on a Sunday, stand up to sing a song, listen to a sermon, and then disappear out the door and live our lives in exactly the same way for the rest of the week that we've been doing beforehand. We're called to de develop our spiritual maturity, to learn, to learn more, to love more, and to serve more. And there is a progression in those. The more we learn, the more we understand about how much Jesus did for us on the cross about how helpless our situation was before he died for us, before he saved us. The more we understand, the more we'll love him. The more we love him, the more we seek to serve him. We should remember that we don't serve to earn salvation. That's a free gift from God, at least free to us. It's not free to God. It cost him. It cost him his son. We serve as a response to that love. God has good works for us to do. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not the result of works, so no one can boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. I do like that last piece. Good works aren't something we do now and then. It should be our way of life. There are things for you to do here in this church. You're a member of it. And that's for you, not anybody else, you. You're here for a purpose. And then we've got ministry to the world. Evangelism and, for want of a better phrase, mercy, showing help to people. Now, not all of us are called to be evangelists evangelists like Billy Graham, but we are all called to be witnesses. Over recent weeks, we've been looking at our front lines, the places where we meet non-Christians and can make a difference. But, make, but meeting non-Christians and witnessing isn't about walking around with a big Bible tucked under your arm and then telling everybody they need Jesus, whether they want a cup of coffee or they actually want spiritual help. It's about demonstrating the love of God to people. It's about how we approach our tasks, whether it's paid work or voluntary activity. 
It's about being a reliable and a good friend. It's about being there for people when they need help and support. It's about being sacrificial in our relationship to people. Being a good neighbor, the way Jesus taught us in the parable of the New Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And as Jesus himself demonstrated when he went to the cross for every one of us. For God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. Demonstrating that sort of love might be costly, but it's demonstrating that sort of love on a consistent basis. Living our faith day by day. That earns us the opportunity to speak about our faith when people will ask us, why are you different? Why are you doing different things differently to other people? Why don't you slack off when the boss isn't in the office anymore? Why don't you take the pens or paper home from work? There may be other opportunities that rise. Um, I wouldn't rule those out. But we will be most effective as witnesses when people can see that we're living out what we believe. James pointed out the need to live our faith and be practical. Again, you, you probably remember this one. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, but you don't meet, supply their bodily needs, what good is that? So faith by itself is, has no works, is dead. Okay, we've, you know, we should be living that out day by day. And equally, as a church, we should be focused on mission, on reaching the local community, to build bridges that will make people likely to listen to our message. But we can't expect people to come to us. Yes, we have church, active, you know, church activities such as youth work, lunch clubs, and similar can bring people into the building. And of course, the building isn't the church, but it's a start of getting them in, used to being here and, and meeting with us. And over time, that can give us opportunities to invite them to more spiritual events, to come and hear the gospel preached to them, for the people who are running those events to witness to them. Those contacts are more likely to be open than someone we encounter in the street or on their doorstep. But we've got to recognize that for the majority of the population, church is an alien world. Think back to when we had the community day in here. How many people came in the, into this building who had never been in here before? They'd wondered what was going on in here, but they'd never actually stepped through the door. They don't know what's going on. They've never been inside a church building. So many nowadays don't even know the Bible stories that most of us grew up with. They're very unlikely to come to us. So if they're not going to come to us and we're going to fulfill our mission, we've got to go to them. There's a sign over the back door. Your mission field starts here. That is a very factual statement. And let's remember something else. Jesus said... The gates of Hades will not prevail against my church. Now, where, does, where do gates sit? They sit in a wall. You know, they are fixed. If you look in a military sense, they are defensive structures. You might find people waving all sorts of things around in a battle. You will never see somebody walking around in a battle waving a pair of gates in their hand. So the gates aren't going to come to us. We've got to get out to them. Then they won't stand against us. We've got to find God's way of reaching those lost souls in our community. We've got to go where they are. We've got to build those bridges 
there that enable us to proclaim the gospel to them. So they have a chance to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's the third thing that the church should be doing. But what's the balance between them? Which is the more important? Well, to be honest, if you look at the Bible, all three of them are commanded. We're commanded to worship God, we're commanded to help each other grow, and we're commanded to be witnesses. So to be effective and strong, a church has got to balance all three of those activities. That's essential to fulfilling our mission. If we don't worship, we don't learn to enjoy being in God's presence, we end up with a set of very dry believers. Might know the Bible very well because we're still teaching it, but they won't know the joy that we should be enjoying as believers, the joy that we should be displaying as believers to other people. If we don't have effective teaching, we end up with weak and immature believers. They won't grow in their faith, spiritual babies rather than mature disciples. So our ministries will suffer. Our worship will be superficial. Our witness will be easily confounded by opposition, questions that we can't answer. And if we don't reach out to the world, we become insular. We will never grow as a body with people coming to Christ. We'll miss out on the joy that comes from seeing people come to faith. As Luke, uh, Jesus said it in Luke 15, 7, I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. But we can join that party. Actually having someone come to faith as you're witnessing to them is something that has got to be experienced to understand the joy it brings. But the need to keep a balance on the work of the church can be seen not just in those, but in some of the things we do. Um, think about praying. We praise God in prayer, but we pray for others in the church and their needs. We pray for the world. So that prayer, in a sense, covers all three of those issues. But do we pray like that? Sometimes it feels we focus so much more on intercession that we forget about praise and thanks. So we really need to make sure that we do spend time praising God and thanking him in our prayers for the things he's done, as well as asking him for more. Think about our worship songs. They tend to come in two styles. And I think this goes back all through church history, where the songs have been written down. Either they're addressed to God directly, and we are praising him in that song directly for what he is, who, what he's done for us, or they're addressed to those around us, reminding ourselves of what God has done so that we can praise him, which is the worship, you know, the worship and nurture side by side. What about communion? Well, that reminds us of what God's done for us, of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his death and his resurrection. And it reminds us he's coming again. That builds us up as Christians. It's nurture. But don't we worship God as we remember what Jesus has done in the quiet? And look at the words we often use when we celebrate communion from 1 Corinthians 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. By proclaiming Jesus' death, isn't that outreach? Aren't we reaching out to any non-believers that are in the congregation? Or baptism. When a new believer or, or an old believer who hasn't been baptized goes through the waters of baptism, doesn't that edify the church? Aren't we encouraged and joyful that someone's made that step? Don't we give thanks to God? But we also use this as a time to share the gospel. 
both in the symbolism of baptism and in the preaching that goes around it, because it's one of those occasions when we likely will have non-Christians in the, in the congregation. Okay, now the painful bit. What about me? While a church should balance worship, discipline, and outreach, as individuals, we've each had specific gifts and experiences that God has given us to serve in the church community. Not many of us are good at everything. Uh, if anyone stood near me during the worship songs, you probably know that I'm, I'm closer to the making a joyful noise to the Lord than I am to being a, a musical liar. And I can see the smile from the music groups. So I must have been singing far too loud this morning. We have strengths. We have weaknesses. And sometimes what it is that makes us good at one thing is exactly the same thing that makes us bad at something else. Someone who is an extrovert and can easily approach strangers might make a fantastic street evangelist because they've just got that ability to go up and talk to people. But they may not be that good at something which needs quiet, solitary effort. It doesn't play to their strengths. We need to find out what our gifts are and see where these best fit within the work of the church. We need to nurture our gifts and we need to employ them. We read part, or Richard read part of 1 Corinthians 12 for us this morning. But look at the rest of that chapter. Verses 1 to 11, 29 to 31. Not all of us are called to be teachers. Not all are equipped to be evangelists. Not all of us are administrators or given the gift of wisdom. But some of us are. Those gifts and all the others that God gives are for the building up of the church. And we need to be using them in his service. And then there are things that we're called to do as part of the church and as individuals. We're called to pray. Now, not all of us are great prayer warriors. But sometimes I ask, how much of that is because we don't try? Prayer is our link to God, the way he's given us to raise concerns, needs, and wants with him. But it's also a way we can give him praise and worship. I suspect that most of us, if pushed, would admit our prayer lives aren't what we might like them to be, and certainly not like those we see in the Bible. When did you last pray all night? Jesus did that regularly. When did you last pray and sing praises when you were hurt or suffering in other ways? Paul and Silas did that at Philippi after they'd been beaten by the magistrates in Acts 16. When did you last gather with other Christians and pray for a member of a church who was in trouble or need, not for an hour or so, but actually through into the small hours of the night? The church in Jerusalem did that when Peter was imprisoned and about to be executed in Acts 12. When did the church last pray in the face of opposition or persecution and ask for boldness to go on being obedient for God and in our witness? The church in Jerusalem did that after the apostles had been beaten by the Sanhedrin for proclaiming the gospel in Acts 4. And look at the results. Paul and Silas were able to witness to the jailer, and he and his whole household, family, servants, slaves, all became Christians. Despite being chained to soldiers and several gates, Peter was released from jail, and no one knew what had happened to him. And when the church prayed, the building was shaken as the Holy Spirit came on the church, giving them boldness to continue proclaiming the gospel. They all honored God 
They trusted him. And as a consequence, they saw God responding to their situation. God hasn't changed. So why don't we treat him the same way? Why don't we pray in that same manner? And then we're called to give. And while we may, we may give to those in need or to mission in other ways, or to charity, the church itself, the local body that you belong to, has a call on your money. Giving is part of our worship. As well as enabling the church to meet the needs of others, it also enables us to keep the facilities going and make sure that we've got what we need to be able to do effective witness. When we give to the church, we recognize that everything we has, have has come from God and we're giving part of it back as a love gift. I suppose the challenge really is, what does your giving say about your love? David, when he was buying the land to build the temple, was offered, um, was offered the chance to take not only the, the threshing floor of Ornan, but also the oxen and the threshing sledges to do, offer a burnt offering. And he refused. He said to him, no, I'm not going to, I'll buy them at full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So he paid him 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. That's in 1 Chronicles 21. Or think about Mark 12. Jesus was in the temple. And he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the crowd putting money in the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. And because it went through a sort of funnel type thing, it made quite a noise if you put the coins in. And then a poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Jesus called his disciples and said to them, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have given out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So how do we give? Some people would advocate tithing, giving the tenth of your income. But it's worth remembering that the tithe was actually the basic sum, and then there were additional gifts and sacrifices that came afterwards that you might want to do. We might decide that we're going to give a different percentage of our income. But the key principle we should be following is give first to God, and give first to God regularly, before we decide what we need, not the other way around, sorting our own needs out first and then giving God what's left. Doing it the, that way, the wrong way around, giving God what's left over, essentially is where Cain went wrong. Remember in, in Genesis, Cain and Abel brought offerings. In the course of time, Cain brought to the God an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of the flock their fat portion. Abel gave the best. Cain gave something after he had picked things for himself. Our giving should be a result of our love for God, our love for our fellow believers, and our love for those who need the gospel, to support the work of the local church, to meet needs, and to support mission. I'll say it again. What does your giving say about your love? What does my giving say about my love? And then we're all called to serve. How are we using our time? Is the TV or a hobby more important than serving God? Do we get involved in things in the church? Are we devoted to our Christian family? 
like they were in Acts. Now, we're not all called to be full-time salaried workers for God, which is probably just as well, else how would we pay for each other? But we are all called to be full-time workers for God. Our whole lives should be honouring God, should point those we meet to God so that they give him glory. As we've already seen, whatever we do, we should do it for Jesus. Our daily work should be done as if Jesus was our manager. But we should also play our role in the work of the church. Not everyone can be a musician in the band leading worship. Not everybody can lead a Bible study group or stand here and preach. But there is a role, nevertheless, for each one of us in God's church. He's given us skills, experiences, and gifts that equip us to do a task in the church and in the local body of Christians where he's placed us. None of us are here by chance. We're here because God wants us here, because he has a plan for us. He wants us to grow in our faith and to minister to each other. Whether you can offer a friendly greeting and welcome people at the door, if you can make tea or coffee and serve in the kitchen, if you can wipe and stack tables or any other job, there's nothing menial in serving the church. It doesn't even have to be a formal job. You might be the sort of person who can provide encouragement to somebody else who needs it. Someone who can be a shoulder to cry on. Or you're the sort of person who spots the potential that others have and encourage them to, to use that potential. Again, think about what Paul said in Corinthians in the passage Richard read. There are many parts, but there's one body. And the parts of our body that are least or less presentable, they get the greater honor. Many years ago, I managed to break my little toe. Very embarrassing. I actually kicked the end of the bed by accident. It was not good. But it was one small toe, one fractional percentage of a foot, very, you know, probably the smallest bit of the body that you can get to. But I found out how important a little toe is. Walking wasn't just painful. It was difficult. Even standing was an issue because my other toes couldn't make up for the lack of that one little toe. I couldn't put any weight on. And the church is like that too. Your contribution, your task, no matter how small you may think it is, is still necessary. Without you, the rest of us can't work properly. We can't fulfill our purpose as a body here in Amesbury without it. And there are times, I think, where we tend to live by the old story about the four people. You might know it. They were named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. Yeah, put it up on the screen because it takes a bit of reading. So there was an important job to be done, and everybody was asked to do it. Everybody was sure somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. Okay, it's, it's funny, it does take a bit of thinking about it. But think, when was the last time there was an appeal for Sunday school teachers? When was the last time there was an appeal for people to help in a particular event? Who stepped forward? You know, was that, did we all have that sort of temptation to say, oh, I'm a bit busy, I'll sit here and wait, someone else can do it? So, what we've seen. The church has a purpose in God's plan for the world. We're his hands and feet. 
the means by which so much of his plan is carried out. And each of us individually is part of that body, the body of Christians that he's put, to, put together. Each of us has a role, tasks that are intended for us to do, and us, not anybody else, in the place that God has put us. If we don't do these, God will find another way to get there, but we'll lose out. Just thinking, when I was preparing this, I died with him, but Ananias of Damascus. Remember the man that Jesus called to go and or to go and lay hands on Saul after he'd seen the light on the road? He went. But what if he'd said no? Don't you think God would still have got to Paul by another means? But Ananias would have looked out. Just think what Ananias later in life was looking back and seeing what Paul had done in the world, thinking, I had a part in that. Might have been a small part, because God told me to, but I had a part. We have a place. Are we going to miss out, or are we going to do what God wants us to do? As we leave here shortly, think about what you could be doing, what you should be doing within this body of believers. You may remember the exercise we did last summer, if you were here, uh, while we were down in the, in the school where each of us was asked to write down on a piece of card the name of somebody and the gifts that we thought they had. If you're not sure what your gifts are, what, you're, what God's equipped you to do, talk to people around you who know you. See if they can help you identify where you can be gifted. And a final bit of the challenge. Look honestly at what you do in the church. What does it say about your love for Jesus? Is your life is your service bringing him glory, not just on a Sunday, but day by day? And if it isn't, what are you going to do about it?